I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 335 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult survivor of brain cancer, broadcasting right now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online anytime at stupidcancer.org. My fabulous uh, co-host, co-founder Kenny Kane on vacation this week. But uh, he'd want you to know that you can never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the Stupid Cancer Show using your favorite podcast app on your iPhone or iPad or iTablet or whatever you have there on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. In this episode, we talk with Jan Bresch, Prevent Cancer Foundation Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, and Dr. Ann Kultz, physician, best-selling author, and motivational speaker about the Prevent Cancer Foundation and Prevention Awareness, Survivor's Battle Attendant on the lovely and talented Kayla Reddig. Alrighty. Hello. Good evening. Hello. I'm joined tonight by uh, my fabulous staff here, Ali Ward, Mallory hello. Rivera, and Sean Shapiro. Hello, hello. In Kenny's absence, it is nice to have uh, four-fifths of my team live here in the chemo deck. Very nice. Allie, it's not often we're all together. No, it is not often no. we're all together. Welcome aboard. Back to New York City, Allie. Thank you. I tried to come up earlier this year, but the snow is just not cooperating with my travel plans. The snow is not cooperating with. Any, uh, there was a um, an article on uh, BuzzFeed, an, a letter to snow from Boston. It's like an open public letter to snow from Boston. Yeah, they deserve. Yeah. To write that letter, uh, they clearly deserve. Yeah, they've that gotten feet of snow. Yes. Yeah. Massive like eight, amount like of eight snow. Eight feet of snow. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It is. Yeah, ridiculous. They don't shut down for anything. They well, apparently they shut down when they run out of money to plow the streets, yeah. which is where they're at right now. <laughs> You know, it's bad when things yeah. are down. And Matt, what are you up to? How you been? Well, dealing with lots of snow and yeah. all that fun stuff, but basically hanging out in Brooklyn with my dog, you know. I don't know why, Sean, but I always feel like you're skiing somewhere. 
I love the snow. Yeah. When when snow is in the forecast, I have a ear to ear grin on my face. Have you been skiing a long time? Uh, since I was twelve. Wow. Yep. So like last week, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You look good for thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got uh, seven days in this season so far. So good so stuff. Good. So I remember when I was little and we were talking to my wife about this back when it used to snow. And by the way, to our listeners, I had the flu last week, so I will be coughing. <coughs> so thanks for your forgiveness. Thanks for coughing on cue there. On this uh, on this wonderful podcast. Um, when I was a kid, when it snowed, we used to go outside. And now we don't go outside when it snows. We stay inside and watch it snow. I yeah. go outside. Uh, is that a is this a an indoor cat Brooklyn thing for my kids? I don't get it. I think it's an indoor generation yeah. now. Throw yeah. throw away the cell phones. Go sledding. No, the thing is, like we we can't do anything when it snows in Brooklyn because like the park they close the parks. Why do they close parks in New York? Public safety, I'm guessing. I don't know. Central no? Park doesn't shut down. No, no, like no. like like the playgrounds so and but stuff. The playgrounds, they, oh. Yeah, I th- it could be they're just concerned about someone hurting themselves. Yeah. That would be my guess. Like it, we would go out while it was snowing, you know, torrentially we snowing. We don't have these problems in the country. No, you are way out in the country. That is true. Yeah. In the boonies, these are like Brooklyn problems. <laughs> the to suburbs, have. yes. Brooklyn problems. <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn first world problems, exactly. <laughs> anyway, the big news of um of uh, on this show here is uh, CancerCon. We are doing very well. It is our international conference. Apparently, it is officially international because you quantified how many countries? We have five countries, including the U.S. So we have New Zealand, Switzerland, the U.K., and Canada. Wow. So many countries. Let's start guilting all the countries that aren't there. (laughs) Ireland. (laughs) Australia. Jews. Israel. Come on, people. No, we are missing three major continents still. That's right. Holding out for that. It's still pretty impressive, and registration just went crazy the end of January. Um, we now are almost full, That's to be a, honest. Really uh, impressive. Yeah, it's crazy. We were like desperate for people like six weeks out last year, and we're. I wouldn't say the word desperate, Matt, but we certainly had the late comers. Yeah. That waited the procrastinators. Yeah. So for it's all of you end. procrastinators that are listening. We have 34 spots left for you to sign up, so sign up now. Right. As Ellen DeGeneres says, procrastinate now. Don't wait till later. Oh, young adults and their procrastination. <laughs> you millennials. I can't deal with you people. And uh, the VIP club is $44,000. It's insane. It's pretty we amazing. are $140 short of 45000 That is pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. And these are individuals who have chosen to fundraise, Sean. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the VIP Club? That is correct. This is a great way to get involved directly with CancerCon and Stupid Cancer. Uh, We have a group of wonderful survivors, patients, caregivers, advocates. You can be anybody, um, and you can fundraise and directly play a role in making a transformative impact on the young adult cancer community. Uh, Already we have eight fundraisers who um, will be receiving uh, full reimbursements for their travel, their um, registration, and hotel uh, to to come out to CancerCon. Fascinating. Yeah. And Mallory's been sending out lots of goodie bags (laughs) for people that earn the silver level. Uh, You can earn a stupid cancer messenger bag with a bunch of swag so that comes to your doorstep as soon as you earn a thousand raise a thousand dollars yes and i like sending swag it's fun it's uh it's pretty good stuff anyway i was just going through some of the um 
for those of you out there, we have a news feed on Pinterest and Tumblr now. It's a stupidcancer.tumblr.com or pinterest.com slash stupidcancer, um, where we start putting all these news stories together that we aggregate and curate. Because, you know, if we posted them all on Facebook, it would be this endless stream. It's like BuzzFeed for healthcare is kind of what we're doing there. But there was a really interesting article today. Apparently, coffee is good for you again. Because coffee was bad for you like three months ago. And now coffee is good for you again. And I just think we should have like a... Um, a kind of like a, one of those like Jimmy Fallon boards that just keeps spinning on what's good for you and what's bad for you this week. Apparently now it, it reduces endometrial cancer. Interesting. Yeah. That seems kind of... I can't come up with the word because my chemo brain's acting up. <laughs> yeah. But just kind of counterintuitive with what um, caffeine does to your system. Right, so maybe the caffeine's bad, but the coffee's good. There, are, Well, I know there are actual things in coffee. Because they're clearly not extricably linked. Coffee oh. and caffeine. I'm kidding. Yeah. Maybe Science! It, maybe there's, isn't there antioxidants in there, coffee? Yeah, there are antioxidants in coffee that help certain things, but I think the caffeine is right. <laughs> really... Anyway, I just found that interesting. I found it really interesting. And the last thing today, there was um, a, a group, I think Molly's Melanoma Group or some, some I'm not doing it justice, called FreeKillerTan.org. Really viral video, very well produced. It's all about getting young people to go to get a, um, a tan at a tanning salon, but it's a fake tanning salon, and they go into the booth, and it's like a funeral home. And there are like people mourning their own death at a coffin that looks like a tanning booth. And it's, they're like shock educating millennials about tanning. It's called freekillertan.org. Everyone has to go watch it. It's extraordinary. So with that said, let's start our show. All right. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, Kayla Reddick is a former elementary school teacher turned professional cancer survivor. We'll find out what that means. After being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 24, please join us tonight. Please welcome Kayla Reddick. Hello, Kayla. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. No, I always, uh, you know, it, it, this is why we, we do what we do. We want to make sure voices are heard, and, and your story is quite exceptional. Um, I, I just, I'm curious to you know what, what makes a cancer survivor professional. Right? Uh, I think it's just that I get paid for, for being one. Um, I consider myself to be one of the luckiest cancer survivors there is, um, getting to turn my personal experience into a career. And um, I work with an amazing company called Reimagine, and we really focus on helping people cope better and, uh, you know, take their life back from cancer and regain their identity. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you were diagnosed with breast cancer at 24. What were you doing in 23 that was so magnanimously, fantastically young and youthful and innocent in 23? Yeah, so when I was 23, I was teaching uh, just being your average, you know, young 20-year-old and uh, just enjoying very healthy. Um, I come from a really active lifestyle. I was a competitive swimmer for many years and took good care of my body. And, yeah, in my uh, when I was 24 is when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And how did that come about? Was it a self-exam or did you just feel weird one day? So leading up to finding the lump, I felt off for about three weeks and everyone thought I was depressed or, you know, something else was going on. And I knew that that wasn't right. And then there was one night where I was just falling asleep and my hands 
grazed my boobs as they often did as I was wiggling around to go to bed. And sure enough, I felt the lump there and, uh, you know, made some phone calls right away. And from the beginning, I realized it was going to be pretty hard for anyone to take me seriously about it just because of my age. Well, that is absolutely where I was going with my next question is that, you know, tonight's show is on uh, the Prevent Cancer Foundation and the concept of preventing cancer, which is, might be different in some people's minds from reducing your risk of getting cancer. And, uh, you know, for young people, myself included, the the symptoms we may identify with are only at the mercy of someone who does take you seriously. Yeah. So talk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, when I, um, when I first found the lump, I called my mom and she said that, you know, it was a pretty normal thing that that happens with women. And I actually called uh, an oncology nurse that I knew she said the same thing. She had asked me a couple more questions, but wasn't concerned. And the advice I got was just to go see my doctor the following Monday. And so I went in and I heard the same thing from her. She said, you know, it's probably just dense tissue. This is very common with women your age. And it wasn't until I really kind of was pressing my family history of cancer and having the BRCA2 gene that she decided to give me an ultrasound. And so I had an ultrasound a couple days later. Again, the tech could tell that it wasn't a cyst, but she said, you're too young to have a mammogram. So it seems like a weight with a little more pushing, she decided to give me one. And, you know, it was within a minute of having the mammogram that she just said, you need to go see a breast surgeon right away. Right. And, and there are good reasons why they typically don't like to do mammograms for young women it has to do with the, the breast density of tissues but clearly if there's something there there's something there absolutely yeah you know i think if you're in touch with your body and in tune what's going on inside you when something's off you just kind of know it and so to be honest when i got the diagnosis it wasn't that surprising and it was almost kind of nice to know that there was an explanation for how i had been feeling um but yeah you know it it was hard to get people to listen to me, but once they did, you know, the process moved along very quickly. So what was your actual diagnosis? Stage what? Any, and you said you were BRCA positive? Yeah, so BRCA2, and I actually had the genetic testing done about eight months before I was diagnosed. And they had said, oh, you know, you'll worry about this when you're 40. And sure enough, it, uh, it I didn't wait that long, that's for sure. Famous last uh, words. But Oh, my actual diagnosis was, uh, at first it was stage 2B, and then at, by the time radiation and after surgery happened, they had bumped me up to stage 3. Um, but yeah, so breast cancer, yep. So did you have a full mastectomy? For, uh, was it localized or what, what the, no metastases? I know BRCA brings with it a whole host of other potential issues. Yeah, so it had spread to my lymph nodes when we found it. And so um, I started out with chemo uh, right away, and I had six months of that. And then I had a bilateral mastectomy and had my lymph nodes removed as well. With reconstruction? Yeah, I had immediate reconstruction. I, I was really lucky that I was able to qualify for that. And then I had another reconstructive surgery in September of this past year. Wow. Yeah. I, what I found most interesting, I don't know if my team knows this or not, but apparently the Early Act, which was passed, Debbie Wasserman Schultz passed the Early Act in 2010 or 2011, grants young women uh, unrestricted um, reconstruction for, for life if they have a bilateral mastectomy. Really? Yeah. Huh. <clears throat> it's kind of like, you know, well, th this crap happened to you. The least we could do <laughs> is make you look as good as possible yeah. on the outside. <laughs> 
Um, so that must have been incredibly, uh, obviously, young adult cancer is shocking and rare in and of itself, but to have your whole life uprooted at that young age, where you, uh, you, were, you were working, you were athletic, you had a life, and then all of a sudden, boom, let's talk through that massive shift in your social structure. Yeah, everything changed right away, and um, thankfully I have a really supportive friends and family, and I was taken great care of, but uh, that didn't, you know, it doesn't really make it any easier necessarily um, to deal with all of it, and it was still pretty challenging. Um, And like I said, I lived a very normal life, and then suddenly it changed quickly, and, um, you know, I always say it's Try having a social life when you can't go out and drink with your friends. Right. Or um, my biggest one was uh, after my surgery, try re-entering the dating scene without nipples. That was a big thing um, for me after my surgery and just wondering what that was going to be like and how men my age were going to respond to that. So there was a lot of uh, social adjustments to be made and that others had to deal with as well. Right, and again, that is something that is not unique to women with breast cancer, but something that's very different when you're younger and just trying to get your life together and and find somebody to date or become social again. So tell us, how did men respond to that happening, which I I assume you went out on dates and were meeting people? Yeah, so um, the biggest reaction I got was just, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. What does that even look like? Of course, many of them... uh, as often as they could if they could see them. Um, But for the most part, uh, people just thought it was really weird. And I noticed that everyone just obsessed over it. And that was kind of the first time where I realized that I had all these physical things happening to me, and I still wanted to be Kayla, but people were defining me um, with my cancer and the symptoms of my cancer. And uh, my best description was, I'm just like Barbie now, guys. Um, Right. (laughs) Yeah, I. Uh, it was uh, quite a shocker for most people to hear. Did you have any support structures through your treatment or follow-up, anything like social workers or peer support or communities? Did, did that exist for you a year ago, two years ago? It did, yeah. I had a really great social worker um, at my hospital who, you know, I met my first chemo treatment and then I got really close with. Um, I, she was actually outstanding. I, I hit a point in my chemo where it just kind of got too hard for me. So instead of chemo, I came up with chemo. And if you were going to come to my treatment, which I normally had about between five and 12 friends every time you had to dress up in a full themed outfit. And my social worker got my entire hospital to dress up as well. And, um, so yeah, the social services support I had was incredible at my hospital. And where were you treated? I was treated at Evanston Hospital in Evanston, Illinois. Oh, okay. Not too far away from uh, the motherland there in Chicago? Yeah, no, right there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this was recently, so there's a lot of, you know, we work very hard with many, many other young adult cancer groups to ensure that there is some degree of community or support or that we like to use the phrase age appropriateness, where they recognize that you may not be 80 years old with cancer and what's that like and why is it different. Um, Were there anything in this process for you around your fertility preservation or or reproductive rights? Yeah, so that had come up right before I started chemo. And, you know, I would have had to delay treatment for a month. And my tumor happened to just be pretty aggressive, and it just didn't seem like that was the right choice. So uh, I I didn't choose to do any fertility preservation. And uh, oddly enough, I'm about to start doing that right now, actually. 
And are you doing it through a, a local uh, system or like a reproductive medical associates type of organization? Um, just through my uh, local, the one my gynecologist recommended, a local fertility center um, out in Orange County, California, where I live. Now, uh, BRCA is, again, it brings with it a whole other potential universe of hurt. And there's a real reality to what that looks like. Have you been involved with any groups around metastatic breast cancer or the BRCA1 community to understand what those risks are? Absolutely. Actually, there's a really great online Facebook group uh, called the Pink Moon Lovelies, and it's all breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or BRCA1 or 2 people who have that mutation. And it's just a really supportive group to you get news information and to connect with each other. And uh, just a really nice community to be a part of and to learn more and kind of be with your people. And uh, it would seem like you, you're a very expressive person. You, you, you speak as if you're on, on, a, on a stage. Clearly, you, you have great presence. Have you always been in that sort of vein? You, you've written, you've expressed yourself, you've, you've spoken out? You know, I think um, my background in teaching has certainly helped that a lot. And a little bit with athletics, you know, just uh, you get put in a spotlight whether you want to or not. But I definitely credit it to my teaching experience. And uh, with my new job now with Reimagine, I get to share my story a lot uh, in writing and verbally as well. And so it just, you know, with practice, it certainly helps. And I really enjoy doing it. Um, I know the stories I heard when I was going through treatment helped me a lot. And so if I can offer that to other patients, then it's completely worth my time. Yeah, and let's talk about Reimagine. I hadn't heard of that until recently when I was approached by them. And I think I, I read your article on Huffington Post and we, we tagged you in it. And, and you, you write exceptionally well, but, but Reimagine is what? So Reimagine is an online education tool. And we have three parts to it. We have our online community. We have our online magazine. And then we have our online school. And so so a lot of times people think it's either therapy or a support group, but it's not that. It's actually a nine-week course that you take, and it teaches resiliency skills and better coping skills. And, it, you know, we don't promise to make your life perfect, but we do promise to help you feel better. And um, you run through tools. It's an hour and a half online every week, and so which is really great because then you don't even have to leave your house, you know, after – months of doctor's appointments, the last thing you want to do is go somewhere. And so this, you know, you can do in your jammies. And uh, you just log in, and you're it's a live instructor, so it's nothing pre-recorded, and you get to interact with other people in your class and with the instructor. And uh, you just learn tools to help you better manage your stress and how to cope better. On our side of the uh, conversation, we say we try to make it suck a little less. Yes, <laughs> Exactly. So <clears throat> we have a few minutes here left. You have a campaign coming out called I Am Not My Cancer. I, I think I get what that is, but why don't you tell us the origin of that and what you're hoping people will gain from hearing about that? Yeah, so the I Am, my, I am Not My Cancer campaign came about uh, when I started working with Reimagine. And really, um, it was born because of, like I was saying before, when people found out I didn't have nipples, they were so obsessed with it. And, you know, when I didn't have hair, when I was going through chemo, everyone was talking about my head, whether it was good or bad, but everyone was so focused on it. And I just felt so defined by all these physical symptoms of cancer. And I wanted to just 
I wanted people to focus on who I was instead of what I looked like or what I had going on with my body. And I knew that if I felt that way, I was sure other patients felt that way too. So we formed this campaign called I Am Not My Cancer, and it helps you make a claim of what you're not, whatever you feel like you're defined by. And what's cool about it is, you know, not just cancer patients have felt defined by something they didn't want to be sometime in their life. So it really is a good universal message for everyone. Um, But then in addition to making your claim, you also get to tell us what we can celebrate about you and, you know, just really take back your identity from cancer because all kinds of trauma can really steal that from you. And it's important to grasp onto who you truly are in amidst everything else going on. Um, What was the most recent article that you wrote? The most recent article I wrote, um, that's a great question. I'm not I'm actually not sure the most recent one that went to publish. Um, I know the I did one on the Pink Moon, uh, the founder of that group, and um, I did a Be Your Own Advocate one recently, and um, I had one on gratitude, and I actually have another one coming out pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, you had written one recently that I read the other day called Tits and Giggles, Pinktober is the Breast Time of Year. Yes, yeah. That's actually one of my favorite articles, yeah. No, it's well done, and it's really done through the lens of younger women trying to understand why a pink mixer makes a difference and how the public relates to something they're getting nauseous about. But it was it was really well written. I would just love to, in your closing thoughts here, what is your your take on prevention and awareness? And I mean, you were born with this gene. You didn't ask for this to happen. You were athletic and fit. What is it that people can practically do in their lives um, to prevent or reduce risk and knowing your body at ETC? Yeah, you know, being really in touch with what's going on inside you, I think, is really important and also taking good care of it. You know, the exercise and healthy lifestyle choices and your diet make a big difference. Um, but that being said, you know, I'm a perfect example of that sometimes these things just happen and they can also happen at a time that really isn't age appropriate. And so, you know, you have to be proactive in your own life and with your health and you have to be an advocate for yourself and, you know, be aware of signs and symptoms and do your self checks. And if you notice something's off, go check it out. You know, you are in control of your own health. No one else is going to do it for you. So you have to take that wheel or, you know, it's, it spins out of control too easily if you're not standing up for yourself. And finally, what is your message out there as a breast cancer, young breast cancer survivor? What is your message to other cancer survivors out there? My message to other cancer survivors, I would have to say, is that it's just the most special group that you can be in. You know, the first thing I ever heard was when I was first diagnosed and I heard anyone who is currently fighting cancer is already considered a survivor. And so, um, you know, you are tough cookies and we're all in this together and survivorship can be just as challenging of a time too. Um, but you know, that's find community with your people and anything we can do to support each other. I think that's what we, we got to do. Okay. Kayla Reddy, a former elementary school teacher turned professional cancer survivor after being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 24, currently blogs and writes for Reimagine and the Huffington Post. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. All right. Kayla Reddick, everybody. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. 
head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We've got a Stupid Cancer Meetup happening in Denver coming up. And if you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Cancer is lonely, and we've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join the beta testing community. We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat at stupidcancer.org slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce CancerMadeMeBroke.com, a national partnership with GiveForward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.org to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. And finally, it's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit StupidCancerStore.org anytime and stay nice and cool or nice and warm. With all new products and styles to choose from, we've got awesome skateboards and Flip the Cancer Bird, our latest plushy mascot. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News. News. Okay, in our featured segment tonight, joining us, Jan Bresch is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Prevent Cancer Foundation, where she manages the day-to-day operations of the foundation. She also does pro bono consultation to various local charities serving children and families. Joining her is Dr. Ann Kuhls, MD, renowned authority on motivational speaking, nutrition, healthy living, and disease prevention. She's the founder and CEO of the wellness education firm Just Wellness LLC and author of several books including the award-winning and best-selling Eat Right for Life series. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show Dr. Ann Clues and Jan Bresch. Ladies. Hey guys. Hey Matthew. Thanks for coming on Jan. Welcome back. You're a, uh, I think this is your three-time returning champion show. Do I get a prize? Um, Kenny might give you a hug. Oh, I'll take that. I'll okay. Take that. He gets good hugs. Good enough. Jan, this is Allie. I'll give you a hug. All right, fine. Yeah, I oh, wasn't going to okay, volunteer Allie. Allie. I'll take your hug. I wasn't going to volunteer anybody except Kenny. I don't have the rights to volunteer <laughs> Allie, but I own Kenny. That's separate. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm really glad to do the show. <clears throat> you know, I always like to, uh, you know, poke a stick at the word prevent, but I think we have an uh, an understanding <laughs> about right. my relationship with it. Um, but uh, it's really important, and even even though I puck us together, it, it's important people talk about it, and it's necessary. Um, so why don't we just get started again by talking about what is the Prevent Cancer Foundation? So the foundation actually will celebrate its 30th year uh, later this year. It started with the premise of what could you do to prevent cancer or detect it in its earliest form when it's most treatable? So we have been doing that for 30 years now. We fund research that is uh, focused on prevention and early detection strategies only with young researchers. We've actually been credited for building a whole uh, cadre of prevention researchers. 
then we take what is uh, the research finds and educates the public on how they can reduce their risk and um, knowing the warning signs and risk factors and also how to become advocates for their own health so that they can hopefully detect cancer early should it happen and many other diseases as well. We also advocate um, for more research funding as well. So we, we kind of have a full portfolio of things that we do for prevention and early detection strategies. And you're right, Matt, we kind of differ a little bit on prevention. Nothing is 100%, as you know, but there are things that you can do to reduce your risk. But, you know, it's sometimes it is the luck of the draw. Now, I'm on the record as saying the, there is one thing that is completely preventable, and that's pet ownership. Not that's always. not always true. <laughs> there are not things called strays. Really I know. I suppose. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting for that day when the kids go. I want a dog. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. And uh, Anne, yeah, make, so make... I'm gonna, Matt, I'm going to tell you a funny story. Oh, about it if you have to. So when my son was four years old, our dog died, and then my mom died, and so we were riding down the road one day, and like within weeks of each other, riding down the road, and my son speaks up and he says. My mom died, my grandmom died, and my dog died. I can't get a new grandmother, but I could get a new dog. He got a new dog. Playing the system well. I, yeah. He deserves it. He deserves it for that. All right. All right. So you, so they, I, you can reduce your risk of pet ownership by not having children. Okay. Let's yeah, all agree. Exactly. All right. There we go. We've eliminated the problem. Yeah. Okay. And yet caused so many more in the process. In any case, I, I again thank you for coming back on the show. We know we're huge fans of what you guys do, and you've been wonderful supporters of Stupid Cancer. Um, Anne, may I call you Anne or Doctor Coles, whatever you prefer. You, you uh, Anne or Doctor Anne. Doc- you don't have to say Coles. Okay, I believe my last right. my legal last name is very glottal, and I don't try to say it very often, so that's okay. I get it, totally get it. Um, you are a renowned authority and motivational speaker on nutrition, healthy living, and disease prevention. Clearly a very important topic that comes up consistently across the entire healthcare spectrum. I think the questions we have from our community are always, well, I'm really busy or I have kids or what do I do and how do I do it? And don't just tell me to do something, tell me how to do it. And I assume you get that quite often. Absolutely. And you know, it's one knowledge is not enough. We have to give people tools and we have to, frankly, I've learned in what I do, and all I do is wellness education. So I always say I have the best job of any doctor out there. I am strictly in the business of personal empowerment, teaching people what they can do on their own through diet and lifestyle to live the healthiest life. And you have to kind of take them step by step. It's not enough to say, oh, eat these foods, don't eat those foods. You have to explain the why. And then you have to say, okay, well, in your grocery store, this is what you're going to get. And let me tell you how to prepare those things. So, you know, I, I will say I, I do... I've learned I have to provide sort of full service, um, um, take them all the way through to really, really make it possible that they'll do it. So, and how did you get into this practice? Oh, you don't want to ask that. Um, I've had a lifelong interest in nutrition dating back even to my teen years, luckily instilled in me because of my father. And I studied nutrition in, uh, as an undergraduate in college because I always knew I wanted to go to medical school. And if you study things you love, typically you make great grades. But I never thought it would come into my professional life as a physician. And ultimately, I went to medical school and went into primary care after, I, after my training. And what I, as I evolved in my private clinical practice, what I grew to really love to do, I mean, it lit my fire in a way I can't even describe to you 
was basically empowering people. These are things you can do so you don't need me. <laughs> um, and I found when I did it that they just, you know, they they lit up. And so that along with the fact that, oh, my goodness, this just flood of amazing science since the early 80s telling us, wow, most chronic diseases that people experience in America are largely preventable. Uh, 90-plus percent of type 2 diabetes, 80 to 90 percent of, of cardiovascular disease, of the totality of cancer burden, 50 percent preventable. Not 50 percent of each cancer. Of the totality of the cancers that people get in this country, 50 percent we know are, are preventable through diet and lifestyle. And, you know, now we have data coming out on dementia and almost everything. Um, and I just decided, you know, that's a lot more fun. And frankly, I realized that I could help a lot more people by focusing in that, um, you know, that sort of one avenue and because not many doctors do it, and it's not their fault. It's that they're not trained to do it in, in school, on, you know, they're not necessarily paid to do it either. So that's what I do, and I just have a great time doing it. It's incredibly gratifying. And, and thank you for sharing that. Just to tie on that, I think the challenge that a lot of people have right now is that Dr. Google is the place where most people just consider going to get anything, and mm-hmm. it's very, very hard. But, you know, When I was diagnosed in 1996, there was nothing, so you really didn't have anything to worry about. Now there's too much. So how do we, right. Right, so how do we get to the right place to know the right people when there's a thousand books released every week on Amazon or on, on you know, yeah. New York times. And, What's and your process to educate people for that? All the time. Yeah. And, and my standard answer is look at the source. There are incredibly credible experts out there that, that are, their information is readily available. So if you know, if you're reading a book, what are the credentials of the author? Is it a couple models? you know, that are writing a book about healthy eating, or is it, you know, a Yale, you know, esteemed MD that also has credentials in, you know, public health and, you know, maybe a master's in public health. So look at the credentials of the individual or the organization that is providing it. I cannot stress that enough, and I I continue to be absolutely blown away um, by people that are, you know, reading books of, I mean, these are people that I'm beginning to be credible experts and, you know, taking it to heart. So I think that's the, and it can be tough because there's, you know, most of the stuff out there is not being proposed or put out by uh, credible folks. So but that's what you do. Who is writing this? What are their credentials? Um, and, and that's usually something if you look into it, you can see pretty readily. And uh, Jan, kicking it back to Prevent Cancer Foundation, you, you said you fund a lot of research in prevention. Is any of that nutrition related? Are you doing science around food technology? We do. We do some around food technology. And, um, you know, prevention is such a wide berth of um, places you could go. I don't think there's anything we haven't looked at. There's nothing recently that we've done in food, but there's not to say that that's not something we wouldn't fund. We've um, started working with Dr. Ann long before she joined our board and then on our medical advisory board. And if you look on our website, we have a whole section that's just donated um, to her information because it's terrific and it's easy 
to do. And, and Anne's right. You've got to really think about who are you getting this information from? Not only have they been vetted, but, you know, is it based on true facts and not that I just want to be a size four because now a size 10 is a plus model? I mean, <laughs> what really is healthy for you? And that's the biggest thing. And it's and again, it goes back to being your best advocate and getting as much information as you can get for yourself. Mm-hmm. So in terms of action, I mean, obviously we are we, we are um, um, animals that have to eat and we can't not right. eat. And it's not something you can ignore. Um, <clears throat> what about, uh, like things you may or may not have control over, such as the environment? As in, like, what you mean? Uh, like, I, I used to make a joke, like, what good is juice and kale if you wake up breathing LA smog, right? And you just carbon neutraling yourself and, you know, how, <laughs> sure. how, how sure. like, that's like the, the working theory. Right. And, and the reality is there are clearly things in our environment that are beyond our control. Uh, but I think in terms of thinking about, chronic disease prevention, and even the cancers that we know are so impacted by things under our control, I mean, it it, it can make a huge difference. And, for example, you know, we know of all all things you can do to decrease your risk of cancers, you know, don't smoke is number one. The second one is keep your weight in a healthy range uh, throughout your life. I mean, that, that is second only to avoiding tobacco is the single most powerful thing you can do to lower your lifelong burden of cancer risk, and that is definitely something under your personal control. Um, next, next thing on the list again, physical activity. That's also a huge part of what I recommend, and we, that's that's number three. That's the third most powerful thing people can people can do to lower their uh, risk of cancer, and that is to try to be physically active every single day, at least 30 minutes, ideally. Looking at the studies, uh, up to 60 minutes. And the next one relates, in fact, many of the remaining ones relate specifically to diet. Number four on the list is limit consumption of energy-dense foods. These are those things that most people love, fast food, junk food, desserts, and sweets. Why? There are a number of reasons, but one is those are the foods that are most likely to cause weight gain. And since being overweight, uh, being obese, significantly increases the risk of so many cancers. And now we're starting to see even cancer survivorships is really in- impacted by that, then you want to, you know, wanna, you want to avoid those foods. Plus, they don't have any disease cancer fighters in them. You know, they're largely avoid. They're nutritionally defunct foods. Next on the list would be eat a plant-based diet. Overwhelming av- evidence. You know, and people always ask, oh, Dr. Ann, you know, what is, the, what, is the, what is the healthiest diet? Well, the good news is, you know what, there are a broad range of eating styles, and we know for a fact that will take you to nutritional excellence, which is, you know, sort of paramount for living a long, active, robust, vital life. And But there are two things that define the healthiest diet. They have to have, there are two features they all must have. One is they're largely plant-based, but they can be, they can be vegan, vegetarian, omnivorous, pale, all kinds of different ways, but they must include a lot of plants. The second thing is they're largely devoid of processed food, meaning they're largely comprised of whole, real foods. So eating a plant-based diet, really important uh, for, for, for cancer prevention. And the next one, limit red meat. Uh, and the standard recommendations are, uh, my standard recommendations are limit red meat to two servings or less a week. Uh, you know, some experts will say you can have up to three, maybe four, you know, modest servings without increasing your cancer risk. And of all 
conditions in which we know there's a relationship between the disease and red meat. Cancer is the one that we have the most data for. Absolutely rock solid, convincing evidence that processed red meats will increase the risk of colorectal cancer and likely many, many others. The data is so strong, experts, scientists know no safe limits for the intake of processed red meats in terms of colorectal cancer risk. Anyway, and then the next one is limit alcohol, and those are the ones that relate specifically to diet, and then, the, of course, the first three are involve lifestyle also. All right, so I have another... And, sorry, Jan, you want to chime in? Matt, I was just going to say all of this you can find at preventcancer.org as well. Of course. Uh, I was just going to ask uh, one other question, and then Mallory wanted to jump in. So what What about... Um, I, mean, I was going to joke like, you know, I, I eat 12 calories a day, it's 11 cookies, you know, versus like 90 <laughs> eggplants. You know, it's just about what you eat, of course, too. But I was going to ask yeah. you, you know, you answered my question. I was going to say, what do you think of Michael Pollan? But I was also not going to go with like, what is the deal with gluten? Yeah, you're asking about gluten. I know all about gluten. <laughs> it's one of the most common questions I get. So much spin, so much myth, so much confusion, understandably, related to gluten. So gluten is a protein found in wheat and barley and rye, and it's been in the press lots over the last five to ten years because there's been this huge and very real uptick in the incidence of celiac disease. So celiac disease is like an autoimmune condition that's basically incited. You know, when people have it, if they take in any gluten, even tiny, tiny amounts, they get dangerous inflammation in the lining of their small intestines. That can lead to all sorts of issues. And there has been a fourfold increase. It's very real in celiac disease in this country over the last decade. We don't know why. There's lots of theories, but that, that, that's one thing. The other thing you're hearing a lot about gluten is that there is a significant uh, portion of the population that they don't have celiac disease, but they just don't do well with gluten. We call that gluten intolerance. And I know a lot about it personally because my husband actually has it. And if you have gluten intolerance, gluten won't hurt you. It doesn't damage your body. It doesn't increase your risk of, of getting, you know, complications or uh, various diseases like celiac disease can, but it makes you feel like crap. Uh, you can be achy, you can be tired, you can feel down. I mean, it has this plethora of, you know, you know, bad, make, cause a, a plethora of sort of bad feelings. And people that have gluten intolerance, when they cut back on the gluten or get rid, get rid of it, they feel a lot better. Uh, and what, what people are really confused about is, oh, if I go gluten-free, it's going to help me lose weight. Well, you know, if you go gluten-free and you lose weight, it's not. there's nothing uniquely, <coughs> excuse me, fattening <coughs> in any manner about gluten. It's just that when people go gluten-free, they're automatically knocking out perhaps one of the most obesogenic segments of our, our foods, which are going to be things like pastries and pizza and donuts and cookies and all of these, you know, refined carb, high calorie carb foods, because most all of them have gluten, just most all of them have wheat in them, and that's why people tend to lose weight when they go gluten free. It's just that they're naturally limiting their calories and shifting their calories to foods that uh, are, are a little bit better for weight control and appetite control. So, um, I actually had a question just because we've talked a lot about what someone can do individually, what about family history and personal medical history? What are some things that you can do or be aware of, um, discussions you can have with your uh, physicians? 
Well, thank you so much, Mallory, for bringing that up because that is a critically important point as a physician sort of devoted to preventive medicine that I wanted to make. And, it, it you know, your health care provider is an – as a cancer survivor, especially a young cancer survivor, your health care provider is an invaluable partner in your quest to live a long, active, and, you know, healthy, robust life because the importance of lifelong clinical health screenings – excuse me, lifelong clinical health screenings – for that high-risk par- uh, population is, is just absolutely vital. Um, and, you know, one of the things we now know conclusively about young cancer survivors, especially childhood cancer survivors, is they're at much greater risk for all sorts of chronic diseases, many of which, you know, if we diagnose them, you know, early on, we can really sort of, dramatically reduce the complications of them and getting back to family history a huge part of the surveillance and the appropriate monitoring of a cancer survivor is making sure that you know their family history because many conditions including cancers and if you've had cancer once you are at risk of getting it again uh, can have a familial component to them so I can't stress enough, and let me just reel, um, reel off a couple of facts. There was a landmark um, study published in the Journal of American Medical Association in 2013. It was uh, part of the St. Jude Hospital's um, lifelong, lifetime cohort study. And what they found was, you know, eye-popping. Of the 1,713 Young cancer survivors that were involved in that study, 98% of them had at least one chronic health problem. By the age of 45, 80% of survivors of childhood cancers have a serious debilitating or life-threatening chronic disease. And they went on to say, this is really important, that many, many were identified early, often before symptoms developed, when, uh, when interventions can have their greatest impact. So I think, you know, knowing what you're at risk for, you must also know your family history. It's vitally important information that your healthcare provider needs to have, and it's things like, especially in your first-degree relatives, your parents and your brothers and sisters, you know, what are the health conditions they've had? Have they had certain cancers? If they have had certain cancers, what age did they get them? Uh, for other health conditions, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, do they have those things? What age do they get them? Um, so the, the more detail you can provide your health care provider, if you are a cancer, um, someone that's had cancer, the more information you can provide them about your specific history and as detailed as possible, the better they're going to be able to care for you. Um, and, again, it, it not only impacts screening, what age do I need screening, what screening do I need, how often do I need screening, but also what we call anticipatory guidance. And I've said many times, we now know that so many of these conditions are preventable or at least, you know, po- po- dramatically positively impacted by diet, diet and lifestyle, but you have to be given the appropriate guidance so you know what to do. And that's another key um, uh, relevant thing related to why your doctor needs to know all of your family history. Dr. Rand, let me show And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add on to that. The other part of that is is that 
the importance of collecting that history and sharing it with your family. Don't just keep it in a vial for yourself. Great Share it out with your family and, and make it kind of a living tree that you pass on to your kids and they pass on to their kids. Excellent point. Yeah, Jan, I was going to ask you at, at the Prevent Cancer Foundation, did you do any research on the education of primary care when it comes to long-term pediatric survivors that transition into young adulthood? You know, actually, we have. We actually funded a study that a book came out probably about seven years ago on that. And um, the thing is, is that most primary care physicians, um, not most, some, um, don't take into effect what um, this, this person has gone through with a pediatric cancer. Yes, they have chronic things. It's like any kind of uh, vocation. Sometimes they just kind of push it off and go, well, you know, you're never going to be 100%. Well, that's not really a good answer. Again, it comes back to you being an advocate for it. It's the same thing of um, looking at um, tests for cervical cancer with um, patients. Does everybody need to be tested? Is there a point where they don't need to be tested? A, a national survey just done uh, says that most healthcare professionals are divided over it. And I think that, you know, family history and long-term effects, I think there still are just some physicians that are still divided. Yeah, and even, though the, even though, it, the, you know, the research is conclusive that there are. Yeah, and I just want to give a shout-out to you, Matthew, for, it's, you know, what you've done to really give a voice to these young cancer survivors and their families. And Absolutely. Because there is no question about it. There is information out there that the key people need to have. They don't have it. And it can make a difference uh, for, for the uh, for these for the you know for these folks. So, um, and, and I'm grateful that that we get we're starting to get this kind of data on what does it mean you know when you've been diagnosed with cancer early in your life, you know what does it mean for me? What are the kind of things that I need to know about? And what are the kind of things that my healthcare provider needs to be aware of so they can you know guide me and take the best care of me so right and the other challenge there of course is this you know the transition from pediatric to adult oncology as a teenager college student <laughs> mm -hmm. you know is the golden medina you know the, the it's the holy grail of discovery yeah. of navigation and no one's exactly. really cracked the nut yet because every hospital uses a different system and then they go off to school and we don't know where they are and then they they just pop up at a university medical center like i did and, you know, you get, they get misdiagnosed. So there's a lot of research that I'm really excited to see start happening now that we're aware that the 375,000 Americans that are long-term peds like me, um, who have many, many issues because we didn't die, thankfully, 20 years ago, you know, right. that there can be a better way to manage that as we, for the next generation that are now mm -hmm. 14 and will be 20 in six years. Here, 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 here. Right, Absolutely. exactly. Very good point. Yeah. But again, that goes back to educating primary care physicians who are maybe like some pediatricians go up to like 25. So yes, right. where, where is that research or where is that pedagogy in med school or practicum or CME, you know, con continuing education? That's where we are sort of planting our foot down to say, you know, it's 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 no one's really got it right when you're diagnosed with cancer as a young adult. But when you're a kid. There's like this moral imperative that we've done everything to save you, and now goodbye, good luck, have right. a nice time. Right. I actually just had a conversation with a friend recently about um, healthcare professionals and primary physicians, and um, the difference of those that are focused on prevention and primary care and the time that they take with each patient and those that are just primary care. 
And Anne, you might disagree with that, but the consensus has been that those no, that have I mean, I, in I their totally prevention agree. and primary care, like my doctor, you know, I go in there, he spends no less than 20 minutes with me every visit. Now, he's hard to get into, yes, but I know that in that 20 minutes, he's going to get everything that's going on with me currently. All right. Mm-hmm. So I was, I don't know if you guys know Chris Carr, um, and uh, Chris Carr a young adult with an incurable type of cancer that's slow growing all over her. It's like epithelial hemolloid, something, something. It's crazy. Uh, She is a, um, she went off to start a career in in wellness and and lifestyle, but she once said something really interesting that it's irrespective of her specific disease or story. It's that when you go to the doctor, they ask you all these questions, but they never ask you, what are you eating? Right. Right. Is yeah, there a cure to that? You know, I, I often say um, it's, it's, it's frankly to me, it's egregious to think that a physician could graduate from medical school and not know backwards, forwards, sideways. And listen, it's not flipping rocket science. And we learned a lot more difficult things in medical school. But to think that a physician, knowing what we, that we now know that diet-related chronic disease is frankly the single greatest cause of adult morbidity and mortality and a growing issue in kids, how could they not graduate from medical school, school being absolute experts in the fundamentals of healthy eating and how that impact, impacts mm-hmm. health and disease risk? It's, it's just mind-blowing to think about it. But here's the reality. And, again, I'm... I'm not, it's, 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 it's a systemic problem. It's not the fault of any individual. It's not doctor's fault. You know, I'm, I, you know my medical school uh, um, classmates were the most amazing people I've ever been around in my entire life. You know, but as phys- physicians, we do what we're trained to do, and we're trained what we're paid to do. And right now, the problem is that there's no, there's no payment for providing this, you know, this counseling. I mean, I mean, I, you know, when I first left my clinical practice to devote myself to wellness education, I'll be honest. My husband said, "Ann, you've lost your flipping mind, and you need to go to a shrink." And I'm not letting you walk away from that practice until you've at least, you know, sort of proven to yourself that you can make it. You can make a go of make a go of this new thing. So for a while, I did both. I and so you know, talk about Jekyll and Hyde. You know, so one day. I'm in the wellness practice, and I'm sitting down. Someone comes in with a high cholesterol, and I'm sitting down for an hour with them, which is what it typically takes me to do a, a really good comprehensive educational program for lowering cholesterol through diet and lifestyle. Spend an hour with them. The next day, I'm in the office, and if someone comes in high cholesterol, oh, here's your Lipitor. I mean, because that's just, I mean, that's just it. That is just the fact of the reality. And, um, you know, so much of the problems we have relate to medical education and how doctors are paid. And, frankly, until those issues are solved, I I really don't see mainstream medicine, mainstream healthcare getting, really getting in to uh, the prevention game and the, you know, the health impairment game like like they should be, but you know what I say? Guess what, man? There's so much entrepreneurial opportunity out there because people are now getting it. They want it. They're star for it. Businesses now know, oh my gosh, it can be massive to my bottom line if I help my employees be healthier. So you know, there there are good, lots of good, credible people jumping into the game, but I, it's, it's, you're not going to see many physicians doing it. 
So basically so, what exactly. you're saying, so because like asking what you're eating is not a billable code, they're never going to ask you. Right. Yeah, nutrition counseling uh, and it is a it is that a billable code and from an MD. You know, last I looked, it wasn't. What's and that easy? Like find how somebody many... who is prevention and primary care. Again, my doctor does ask all those questions. It's not easy question like how many drinks do you, how many alcoholic beverages do you have in a week? Do you smoke cigarettes? Those are the yes and no or one to five right. questions. Yeah. Right. You can't get that yeah. answer with a diet. Well, I could ask yeah. you, how often do you eat the double downs of KFC per week? Do you have a serving of dark leafy greens every day of your life? Right. Yeah. How about nuts? How, about, how many fruits do you have a day? Um, when was the last time a plant entered your mouth? <laughs> right. It wasn't fried. <laughs> it wasn't deep fried, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or stewed for 12 hours <laughs> if you're from the South. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is we, we're opening up, you know, the already well-known Pandora's box of our our broken healthcare system. It's really not a, uh, it's more of a sick care system. They don't encourage you to be well. They only deal with you when you're sick, and it costs you money to be well. So, mm-hmm. you know, where is the is there any? I mean, research is a broad term, but is there are there any studies going on about, you know, where consumer behavior is leading itself towards when insurance won't cover things that we need to have done to stay well? Yeah, well, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I think I think we just look at where we are today because they traditionally have not covered it, and you know we're in really, really you know, bad shape, um, you know, overall. And you know, uh, the 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 beacon of the great beacon of hope is is the area that I work in, which is employee wellness. That's, I mean, that's not the only area I work in, but that is a uh, focus area for me because it's one of these amazing contexts where everyone wins. Dr. Ann wins because she gets access to lots of people in a really efficient manner. The employees win because they get to learn about, um, you know, how to be healthier on the dime and the time of their employer. And the employer wins because they get more productive, healthier, happier employees that, you know, have less health care costs. Um, and, you know, we do have good data, coming, great data coming out that employee wellness, you know, it doesn't just save you money, it makes you money. Um, and it's, so, it's fascinating to see that, you know, that is really one of the most promising avenues for providing this, um, the type of, you know, this type of guidance. And again, it's not, it's not even rocket science, um, you know. And you don't have to be an MD to be the one delivering it. It's nice if you have that credential because it, you know, automatically you have credibility and people tend to listen to you uh, more so because they oh, she knows her stuff. Um, but, you know, you, you don't have to have that high of a credential to really, really make a dramatic impact through wellness education on, on people. So. And uh, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, this I don't want this to open up too much of a giant you know, hole in the ground. But we just signed on to a petition with the Environmental Working Group about GMO labeling. Yeah, and, and, I'm, I'm, they're one of my favorite groups. Oh, I love I them too. Live without them. Um, yeah. Where, where is the uh, sort of the research risk reduction prevention universe on GMO standings? Sort of, all, I'd say all over the board. I mean, it's obviously a very, very controversial issue. And, you know, the way I look at it from what I do, well, two things, you know, sort of from a, um, a social standpoint. I'm, I'm just a huge believer in uh, importance of, um, 
you know, freedom of we, we need to, you know, we have a right to know. I mean, consumers deserve to be able to, to be consumers deserve to be able to be given the information that allows them to make an informed choice. And, and, and so that's one thing. I mean, I just think, you know, living in a democracy and, and having liberty and all those things that, yeah, if, if, you know, I'd like to know if, you know, maybe some people don't give a, a rip. But I, I frankly like to know if I'm eating a food that's genetically modified or not. Uh, so that's one issue. And the other issue is what about, you know, you know Dr. Ann is, is um, you know, a health expert, an expert with nutrition. Are you concerned about potential health impacts of genetically modified foods? And I, I tell you where my concern lies is that we now know there, you know, we've known for a long time, of course, there is in trust species sharing of genetic material. I mean, you know, you get your DNA from your parents. But we now know, and this is a really important thing, there is interspecies sharing of genetic material. Um, and there's really no separating me from this, from that. I mean, we are, there is genetic material being sh- sh- shifted around and largely through microbial vectors. So, for example, we know, we, we, they've published at least one, if not two published studies to show that uh, genetically modified foods, um, I can't remember exactly which one in particular, that bacteria in our GI tracts are picking up that gene, and we know that those bacteria share their genetic material with us. So, I mean, I think this is talking, talking about, you know, short-sightedness and to not think, wow, what, what are the long-range potential impacts of this in terms of, I mean, doing, opening a Pandora's box, I mean, just messing with genetic material, uh, you know, it's, I mean, oh my goodness, I mean, it's just crazy to me. Right. Think about that. And I don't think people understand that like they should. Um, so you know, it's an interesting fight, and EWG is one of my, I'm just a, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond a fan of them. I get their stuff every, all the time. I give them, I give them money. <laughs> I support them. Um, and I got that, those communications yet just today. Yeah, we helped them reach 40,000 people in like an hour. It was the, Well, the, good for you. This is a very you, active that's community. The, that's the other thing about, you know, these cancers. Like, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, everyone that gets a cancer had some hit at some point to their DNA. We know that. You know, that's initiation. Bam, it's instantaneous. And we do know that, you know, they're thinking now two-thirds of that is just a chance, just strictly by chance. But for the remaining... It's likely something in the environment, uh, and particularly something that your mother was exposed to while you were in the womb or uh, that you were exposed to in early childhood. The seeds of cancer, you know, we think are, are most likely to be planted at that time because your stem cells are so rapidly dividing. And, I mean, I don't have a doubt, you know, if we could do the test and, and if we could, if we could un, you know, if we could uncover it because that's the, the, that's the quagmire. It's just tough to do these kind of tests. I, you know, I think there'd be a lot more environmental. We'd identify a lot more environmental causes of cancer initiation. Well, Dr. Ann, you are a re- replete encyclopedia of knowledge and wisdom, and I, I thank you for coming on the show. We should do a separate show just with you. Uh, anytime. Um, yes. I love radio. It's one of my favorite. It is my favorite. It is my favorite media. And uh, I will tell you that. Kicking it back to Jan, what do we have on the horizon for Prevent Cancer Foundation as we uh, slowly come to a uh, close for the show? Um, next up for us is our national conference called Dialogue for Action on Cancer Screening. 
So um, it brings a very diverse group of uh, people together to try and increase screening rates and reduce, you know, the morbidity of um, cancer. And there's a brand new young colorectal cancer group called Never Too Young Coalition, and they are actually fighting for the rights to reduce the age of colorectal screenings to 40. So what are they called? Never Too Young Coalition. They're part of the Colon Cancer Alliance. We are partnering with them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they want to get screenings down to 40 or make it available to people with genetic risk that are under 40. Um, But they don't have to fight their insurance company to get it. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. we're we're on that page with you. And I I know the dial. I was at the dialogue for action last year was amazing. And I I know you guys are going to have a stellar event once again this year. Um, Thank you. So, all right, and uh, Dr. Ann, I'll just say Dr. Ann, a renowned authority, motivational speaker, uh, CEO of Just Wellness, uh, author, uh, Eat Right for Life series, and Jan Bresch, the EVP and COO of Prevent Cancer Foundation. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us thank on you, the uh, Stupid Cancer I'm Show. My pleasure. All right. Good night. All right, Thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. Still have one. Want to hang it up? I can figure out how to do it. Red. Got it. Yeah, there was a ghost on that line. Yeah, Yeah, that was weird. That was really, and then it went away and it came back. Yep. There was like a man and there was like a woman. Like, yeah. Well, thankfully, Doctor Doctor Ann was loud enough to cover all the voices. All right, let's let me close it. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 335th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our show's guests, Kayla Reddig, Jan Brush, and Dr. Ann Cools. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity that comprehensively addresses young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss a show by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the feed and the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself and Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Ali Ward tonight, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye.